0: Listening to Beyond the Whistle. Beyond the Whistle is the show that takes you beyond the X's and O's to provide tips and advice on the business of sports and how sports professionals can advance in their careers. Beyond the Whistle is brought to you by McCants Sports, a sports executive search and sports leadership consulting firm. Learn more at McCantsports.com. Welcome to Beyond the Whistle. I'm your host, Odell McCants, and thank you for listening. This episode, my conversation with Tom McMillan, is very special to me. As a kid growing up in Washington, D.C., I had two dreams, to play in the NBA and to be President of the United States. Having worked in the House of Representatives for a few years out of college and being an NBA agent, I like to think that I came a little close. Having those childhood dreams, one of the people I followed closely and greatly admired was Tom McMillan. Being in D.C., I got to watch his career firsthand, his All-American career at the University of Maryland, his time playing with the then Washington Bullets, and his three terms in Congress representing the Maryland suburbs of D.C. Today, Tom is president and CEO of Lead One. Lead One is an organization of athletic directors of Power Five and Group of Five programs. If you're not following Lead One, it's important that you do. There are links to their website and social media in the show notes. In coaching, we're always talking about how the number one job of an assistant is to help make your head coach successful. Well, we need to think the same way about the boss of everyone in the program, the athletic director. As the business of college sports has grown, so have the issues facing ADs. The changing landscape of sports media and broadcasting rights and platforms, legalized sports betting, a very new issue. Societal issues like social protest, gender equity, sexual and domestic abuse. These are all the issues that keep ADs up at night. And while they may not have a direct impact on winning and losing games as a coach, you need to have a basic understanding of all of them and a professional, ethical and legal knowledge of some. If there's an issue or a challenge that keeps your boss up at night, you better believe it impacts your job. Now, I know I spend some time on Tom's bio in the opening, but I think it's very important to understand his background and experience and how fortunate we are to have him as a leader in collegiate athletics. Here's my conversation with Tom McMillan. Leadership is a cornerstone of sports, and our guest today, Tom McMillan, has lived a lifetime of leading. In 1970, Tom was the nation's top-recruited high school basketball player out of Mansfield, Pennsylvania. And that year, on February 16, 1970, He became the first high school athlete to ever appear on the cover of Sports Illustrated magazine in an article chronicling his recruitment that concluded with him signing with Lefty Drizelle in the University of Maryland. While at the University of Maryland, Tom's career included setting the school's highest career scoring average, a record he still holds along with becoming an All-American and participating in the 1972 Olympics as a member of the U.S. men's basketball team that had a gold medal stolen from them. And yes, I said stolen from them in the controversial game against the Soviet Union. And by the way, Tom accomplished all this while majoring in chemistry, graduating as valedictorian and becoming the University of Maryland's very first Rhodes Scholar. As a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, Tom received a Bachelor and master's of arts in, Master of Arts in Politics, Philosophy, and Economics. Tom went on to play for four teams in an, in an 11-year NBA career, finishing in 1986 with the Washington Bullets, and in a season that saw him become the first and only active professional athlete to run for Congress. Winning that congressional election in 1986, Tom served three terms representing the 4th District of Maryland in the U.S. House of Representatives. Since leaving Congress, Tom became a founding member of the Knight Commission on Intercollegiate Athletics, has founded several publicly traded companies, and now serves as president and CEO of Lead One, an association of athletic directors of Division One programs. Tom, welcome to Beyond the Whistle.
1: It's great to be with you, uh, Odell. I'm, I'm happy to join your show today.
0: Yeah. And Tom, I first want to say it is a personal honor to have you as a guest. Uh, as a kid growing up here in Washington, D.C., I had two dreams, to play the NBA and to be president of the United States. And I like to think that I came pretty close, uh, played basketball in college, uh, worked for several years on the staff of one of your formal, former congressional colleagues and mutual friend, Jim Moran. And as my time as an agent represented players in the NBA and internationally. So, again, I like to think I came pretty close, but not as close as you.
1: Well, those are pretty big goals. So uh, congratulations to you for setting big goals in the first place.
0: Yeah. And, you know, and as as a kid and I guess I'll say young man, not to make either one of us feel old. uh, Two people I greatly admired were Bill Bradley and yourself. And the two of you had almost mirror images of careers. Uh, and In fact, I don't know how much how one person can accomplish what you both have. Uh, And for those who may not know or have forgotten, Bill Bradley was also a Rhodes Scholar, a highly recruited high school basketball player, Olympic gold medal winner and played a 10 year NBA career and also served in the U.S. Senate. And Tom, while you were growing up, how knowledgeable were you of Bill Bradley?
1: Well, I was very knowledgeable of him. I met him, um, I think it was in ninth or 10th grade at a basketball camp, but I had been following his career. And for a young person like myself, he was a great role model. Uh, You know, he was someone who balanced sports with school and did it with great excellence. And so, I, uh, you know, I followed him, and as I said, he was one of my idols.
0: When did you first have an interest to run for public office?
1: Uh, It's interesting. When I was at Oxford after college, uh, and then I continued at Oxford, even when I was in the MBA, I went back in the summers. um, I I majored in uh, politics, philosophy, and economics over there, which was very different than my undergraduate program of chemistry. And so I got very interested in politics at that time. Even, even before that, when I was at college, one summer I worked in the U S Senate for Mike Mansfield. I worked in the cloakroom, So I had a, I had an interest in it. I was involved in student government at Maryland. Uh, so, you know, I probably started thinking about running for office, um, in the late seventies, um, I bought a house in Anne Arundel County, and I think '79 or '80, and then I ended up running in '86. But to do that, I had to, I had to get Ted Turner to trade me back to Washington, so I could play play for the Bullets for a while. And, and funny enough, he did it, so that <laughs> yeah, kind of worked out.
0: And you know, I I think that growing up here in the DC area. Uh, played a big role in my interest in politics. You know, our, our, our local news here is the national and, and world news. And I was going to ask you what impact did finishing your career in DC have on your political aspirations?
1: It, it was very, uh, very big. Uh, when that sports illustrated story came out, when I was in high school, the white house called and uh, appointed me to the president's council on physical fitness. Now under Nixon I was well. I was the youngest presidential appointee at seventeen, I think, ever, even to this day. So I came. One of the reasons I came to Maryland was because I thought that would be real fun to be, you know, on a presidential commission and going to the White House, which I did, and, and that kind of continued to spark my interest in government and public service. As I said, I worked in the Senate one summer, and then I went to Oxford and did politics, philosophy, and economics. So. Of course, being in the Washington area uh, catalyzed a lot of that. And and remember, when I was here, it was kind of a very interesting sports uh, period. You had Lombardi and George Allen and Hank Williams, and you uh, uh, you had some great sports icons in the area.
0: You know, I mentioned in the intro that you've lived a lifetime of leadership. And what does leadership mean to you?
1: I think leadership is about uh, when you're when you're involved in an organization or even on a team. It's just really doing the right things, having goals, uh, making sure that everybody in your organization understands the goals, uh, working hard, working harder than anybody else to achieve them, and uh, not, not being afraid to fail and fall on your face a few times. Uh, leadership is. In leadership are qualities that uh, you, you you march you march ahead, but yet you know that you're going to have failure along the way, and 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 you have to persevere through that. Uh, whether you're playing on a team or you in a political campaign or whatever, th- those those are the same traits that apply.
0: Tom, in 2015, you became president and CEO of Lead One. Can you share with us more about the organization?
1: Lead One. Uh, historically, it was formed in 1986, was a consortium of the athletic directors of the largest, most powerful colleges and schools in, uh, in college sports, uh, schools that make up the football subdivision. So to really be a part of it, you have to have big-time football, and of course if you get big-time football, then your program is going to be one of the larger programs. So we have 131 schools. We work with the programs and the ADs and the student athletes, and uh, what we we work on primarily is really shaping the rules of college sports, working with the NCAA on a myriad of issues, whether it's transfers, the Rice Commission, (laughs) academic misconduct, time management. Those are the kind of issues, sports betting more recently, uh, those are the kind of issues that we work on. We also work... You know, in messaging and making sure that we provide services to our members and, uh, and also just looking for opportunities to make our make these schools better performing in their operations, whether it's buying health care insurance or, or air charters. So we work on a lot of different issues.
0: So prior to lead one, I know you were having a very successful career, uh, in, in, in business and what, what led you or or spurned your interest in, in lead one? Well, it's interesting
1: when a, uh, Kevin Anderson, at the university of Maryland asked me about it. I initially wasn't interested. Uh, the search firm continued to talk to me about it and it was based in Dallas. I obviously wasn't interested in going to Dallas. So they, they said, "Well, come to the interview, and uh, we're we'll, we're open on the location." So I went down, and talked to them. They said, "You know, we'd be willing to move it to the Washington area," and and then I thought about, well, you know, college sports has changed so much since I was in school. I mean, it's it's such a big business now. It's uh, it just uh, when you think about it and the 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 stickiness of college sports with fans across this country and you know, how big it is to people, the loyalty to their institution. Uh, it's so different than when I was in school. And I thought it'd be a challenge to see what we could do here.
0: Yeah. In those years, and it, it feels like it's not very long, but we've uh, gotten to a, a really pivotal area point that I believe in, in college athletics. And you touched on some of it earlier, and we know the FBI investigation into college basketball, which spawned the Commission on college basketball and its recommendations and the Knight Commission's report on college basketball. How would you describe the, the state of, 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 A of college basketball? I know that's the interest of mine and a background of, of yours and many of my listeners, but as well as the state of college athletics overall?
1: Well, I think college athletics is very strong right now. Yeah, they, obviously they have problems. We face those every day, whether it's concussion litigation or pay-for-play litigation, sports betting transfers, all the, all the issues. Uh, millennials not going to the games as much. Uh, but overall, I would say college sports is is, is really very strong. Um, you know, in any organization this size, you're going to have uh, problems. You're going to have student athletes get in trouble or, or more systemic issues like we saw in the, in the FBI investigation. But overall, I would say, you know, these kids, there's almost a half a million of them going through uh, college, the NCAA sports. And in our organization, we have 78,000 kids. The, you know, the vast majority of those kids are not bas- basketball players or football players. They're playing a sport, and they'll go on to graduate and have uh, productive careers. So uh, people forget that. Well, oftentimes when they think about college sports, they just think about football and basketball. But it's so much more than that. I mean, of our 78,000 kids, only 20,000 of them are football and basketball players, both men and women. And so we oftentimes don't think about the vast majority of the kids who are playing softball and hockey and all the other sports.
0: So Tom, going back to that, to the FBI investigation and, in, in, uh, as much as you can share with us, when that, when, when that bombshell came in, in last September, uh, what was the reaction and conversation like with your members and kind of, uh, can you, can you share with us, uh, what kind of the response was uh, in terms of of bringing your your members together for for, for that conversation?
1: Well, ironically, uh, the announcement came in the middle of our annual meeting in Washington, in Washington <clears throat> D.C., and Mark Emmert, the head of the NCAA, was there and he got oh, on my to goodness. speak just moments after the announcement came out, and really, no one understood what it meant. Several of our ads uh, had to leave the meeting because their na- their schools were named and uh, they they exited the meeting but really no one understood what it all mean- all meant when you have the power of the federal government uh, investigating something it, you know obviously it's very meaningful it's that doesn't happen it hasn't happened in college sports so it was a big wake-up call. Um, you know, I, I I think that the vast majority of college sports, college basketball, and, and the vast majority of the players are above board and beyond reproach. But in any organization, you're going to have those who try to cut corners. And some of that occurred. And I think the, the good news about the FBI investigation <laughs> is that, It will will put folks on notice, not that they can't get away with stuff. The tools that the FBI has, wiretapping and subpoenas, are tools that the NCAA does not have. And so it will make it more, more likely that people think twice in the future about engaging in nefarious activities because they realize that the federal government could be watching them.
0: You know, we've now seen the report uh, from the Commission on College Basketball and the Knight Commission and the Knight Commission's uh, re- report as well. Where do you see us being in terms of next steps? Uh, and I know it's 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 on the NCAA, but when you when you work with your members, where do you see us being in terms of next steps to take from those reports?
1: I think the next step, obviously, they're trying to. Uh, codify it in legislation uh, and get it in place before next basketball season. I think that was uh, the mandate, and I think they'll achieve that. Um, you know, a lot of people said, well, it didn't address the core issues of paying athletes. Well, I think the, as they say, you shouldn't let perfection be the enemy of the good. I think there's a lot of positives in that report, and I think a lot of it will be implemented. Uh, whether it, you know, completely reforms college sports is another thing, but I think it's a step in the right direction, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, this will get done in the next next couple months, and we can begin to see some of these reforms.
0: You know, one of the recommendations I was happy to see was allowing athletes to college students college student athletes to have representation uh, in a structured. Uh, environment of ncaa certified agents because during my time as an agent i felt that uh, student athletes and parents and families needed access to more information not less and uh when 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 contact was restricted and limited what would generally happen at the selection process is that all of us look and sound the same, sound alike, and no uh, past uh, reference point. Decisions were made based on who's giving me what, or who looks a certain way, or dresses a certain way, or speaks a certain way, without any uh, thought as to who can best represent me and pos- and position me for success in my professional uh, career. So that's one thing I was really happy, about. and I know you, you you've spoken on that on that thought uh, of the of, of representation as, as well.
1: I, I do think it's a positive step. Uh, this is a very big decision for kids, and I, I do think that if you look at the baseball example and some of the examples that there are more flexibility in, in getting counsel, but, you know, as, as anything, it oftentimes is abused. These, these agents can be uh, can be can be detrimental to the process as well. But mm-hmm. I, uh, I think overall that it's important to be able to allow uh, these kids to have some kind of guidance when they're making this decision. This is a very big decision. I mean, sometimes when kids are trying to decide whether they're going to go into the NBA, it's going to happen with more frequency because the money is so big now. The NBA is, Creating alternatives for kids outside of college, their their academies, the, the the G League, and I think I think it's just inevitable that these pressures are going to continue to grow. And kids should have kids should have some some ability to get counsel on these matters.
0: What's the conversation been like uh, since the Supreme Court ruling on sports betting, and how do you see that impacting college athletics?
1: Well, as a matter of fact, we have a call today uh, to talk about it with our, a lot of our ads. Uh, it's it's an interesting evolution. I was in Congress uh, in the early '90s when Pass was passed. It was very non-controversial. It was a it was a voice vote in the House. Uh, but now, as we move forward, 25 years or 26 years later. The world's changed. I mean, gambling is everywhere around the world except the United. Illegal gambling's everywhere around the world except the United States. And uh, you look at the amount of illegal gambling that's occurring in America—150 billion or so. It makes sense to try to find a structure where you can regulate it, legalize it, and tax it. And our even though our ads were initially opposed to it. Uh, I think 80% of our ADs were opposed to legalizing sports betting. I think that they're realists in the sense that they realize that it's probably going to come and they're going to have to manage through it. What what bothers our ADs a lot is that these kids are very vulnerable. Uh, They're not, you know, making millions of dollars like pro athletes. And all the sports scandals involving sports betting, in the last 25 years involving players have been at the college level and you can name a whole bunch of schools that have had problems in this area uh, and when it happens to a school it's catastrophic now the legal market will have more protection in a lot of ways you'll have better integrity services better data better ways to catch anomalies And illegal activity, but human nature as it is, when you have gambling so close as you have at UNLV and some of those other schools, the temptations are going to be there and it's going to require a lot of effort in our schools to keep these programs clean and keep their players clean. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's going to be a challenge.
0: And Tom, is it is it fair to say that a legalized structure can actually uh, help with some of that integrity? Uh, because I, I, I believe that of those college betting scandals, they were first uh, alerted or came to light by, you know, Vegas sports books, recognizing, hey, there's a lot of movement on this, you know, random tuesday night college basketball game uh that's you know there's a lot of activity here and let's alert and let's alert the feds and 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 the appropriate authorities
1: no question i think in a legalized market uh what has changed in the 26 years since baspa was passed is these integrity services these companies that use big data and so forth to analyze uh these kind of gambling trends that wasn't that wasn't Around back when Paspa was passed, today it's very prevalent. But even with that, you notice in tennis in Europe, for example, they're worried about uh, some some more scandals. And that's tennis is a big, big sport of, of gambling in Europe, where data goes right from the linesmen to the to the sports books, and yet they've had concerns about. Uh, gambling incidences is in tennis. So <laughs> the fact that you have integrity services, the fact that you legalize it, you're still going to have temptations. And that's what you have to worry about. Because for a college and university to have a sports betting scandal, it's so contrary to what universities are all about, mm-hmm. is educating student-athletes. To have a sports betting scandal on the front page of their local newspaper is catastrophic for a university. And so it's uh it'll be a challenge. Uh there are risk and uh our schools are gonna have to devote resources to making sure that uh, everything is every everything is okay.
0: Yeah. Tom, you've been a champion for diversity your entire career. And uh, I think in 2017, 2018, have been good years for advancing diversity in college athletics. We've seen women AD hirings like Heather Lyke at Pitt and Carla Williams at Virginia. And and Carla became the first African-American woman AD in the ACC. And we've seen African-American males uh, like Alan Green hired at Auburn and Martin uh, Jarman at Boston College. Yet in, in coaching... We're experiencing almost the disappearance of black coaches. Uh, the the Big Ten will go into its third season now without a black head men's basketball coach, and, and that league was once a, a pioneering organization uh, in of, of racial diversity. And how how would you rate diversity across college collegiate athletics and coaching and administration today?
1: I, I think at the AD level, there is really and it a legitimate, bona fide attempt by universities to, to bring diversity to the table. Uh, as you said, more women, more, more diverse uh, candidates and so forth. I, I think you see more and more of that occurring. Um, and that's positive. And, and there's been a lot of efforts. We, we, we run an institute every year where we bring in 10, which we train upcoming ADs, um, about what, what it's like to be in the chair, how you get the job, what do you do when you get the job. And we give out 10 minority scholarships every year uh, from the McClendon scholarship because we think that extremely important in, in getting more diversity is is preparing candidates for the jobs and so forth. In the coaching world, it's very interesting. I, I, I'm not as close to that. I don't, but I do. I do hear your point. Uh, it's, it's a challenge because most of these coaches go, rise through the ranks, uh, same way with college ADs. Uh, and unless you're kind of training them and giving them the backgrounds, you're not going to have the results at the end of the tunnel. So I, I think there's there's work to be done in this area, there's no question.
0: Yeah, you know, when I survey the gap uh, or the landscape, I should say in, in, in coaching, uh, and my greater familiarity is in, in basketball coaching. It's it's you hit it right on there. It's it's the it's the pipeline, and that gap in the early stages of the pipeline. Because um, I'll be quite candid here, you know, when it comes to minorities in sports, uh, too many of us focus on the athlete side of the business, because I think it's easiest for minorities to relate to players because of the number of players and the prominence they play like on what I call the front stage. But in the backstage, that's what really funnels you know, individuals into those lifelong sports careers, uh, in college coaches are more and more starting out as student managers, graduate assistants, video coordinators, and, you know, as you mentioned again, in, in that early pipeline, uh, and now it's including analytics. And that's where I see almost a complete void of young minorities. It's almost, almost non-existent.
1: I, I agree with that. I, I know that last week I was at Wearfield uh, in Dallas and they have a minority Academy they were training about 20 young minority uh, managers for jobs in college sports and 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 related businesses and so forth that those kind of efforts along with what we do really develop the pool of talent that uh, allows schools to to have to have the opportunity to, to, to be more diverse I don't see the same thing in the coaching side. I agree with you. I think it's uh, it hasn't been as organized as the administration side. And,
0: and speaking of coaching hires and, and, and career uh, journeys, um, from the experiences of, of, of your Lead One members and what they share with you all as an organization, what are the qualities they value most in evaluating coaching candidates? Well,
1: I think – to be a head coach today is a very unique quality. You have to be a, you have to be able to recruit, uh, and oftentimes that is delegated. But the head coach still, especially in basketball, is still vitally important in that. And obviously, people want to look at a proven track record. One of the problems that uh, you know you have in college sports today? Is kids start. They get a job and then they go to a small school and they're the coach there. And the way they survive is play bigger schools and get those guaranteed fee games, those guaranteed games that pay them. But here they're playing teams that are much better than they are. that hurts their records, but they're doing it to financially stay alive. So when you're in that sort of vortex, it's hard to get out of it because you're how do you how do you break out when you're playing teams where you're gonna lose're you're, you're, you're really getting paid to lose and that didn't exist when I played you know you played teams um, based generally on geography and what well, making sure that the kids didn't have to travel too far today it's really it's become more commercial and oftentimes these games are played against inferior opponents for the purpose of, look, I'll pay you, we'll come, to your, we'll come and play, and you get paid, and your chances are you're going to lose. That makes it really hard for a young coach to break out of that. I think that is one of the shackles that's on young coaches today. So a lot of coaches end up coming up the ranks, being assistants to head coaches, and learning the ropes that way. And then then they get a break, um but it's a real, it's a hard grind to get to the top. There's no question about it.
0: Yeah, You know, Tom, you, you brought up a point that I don't think is being mentioned uh, when you talk about progression of, of coaches and minority coaches or, or any coaches at the low D1 level, as you mentioned, is the impact on losing those guarantee games. And we, we understand the financial and economic realities of it, um, but it's tough to come. You know, it's hard to, to convince an AD who has to convince a university president and and, and alumni and fan base uh, to hire someone with a losing record. Uh, you know, look at a guy like Mike Davis who who just last week was hired you know, from a Texas Southern, playing those guarantee games, and was hired at the University of Detroit. But but Mike had that experience also at an in Indiana. At a UAB, almost had kind of a reverse uh, career, if you will. But that I think that's a point that's not being discussed as part of this as part of this conversation.
1: And and the other thing is that in the AD world, the ADs largely set the football schedule, or they work with their football coach. In the basketball world, the basketball coaches are oftentimes setting that schedule, and they're mm-hmm. so concerned about preserving their win re- loss record. I mean it's now that's changing a little bit as as you know as the RPI and all that gets a little more important but historically the basketball coaches have set their schedules and and many of them just don't want to lose they they want to preserve their record. So it makes it very hard if you're on the other side of that and you're trying to break out uh, it's very difficult, and uh, small coaches, small school coaches, have enormous difficulty. One, scheduling the right opponents. Two, uh, oftentimes it's a pecuniary relationship, you know, we'll come, you lose, kind of thing. And as I said, it makes it very difficult to break out and to excel as a smaller school coach.
0: And Tom, in running a program, coaches obviously need to focus on recruiting and winning games and player academics. How important do you believe is it for coaches to understand the issues that keep your members, your AD members up at night uh, beyond – their their sport, and I'm thinking uh, your media rights and current challenges and team travel that I know you guys uh, are playing a role in um, in in that conversation and understanding the political landscape of their institution. How important is it for coaches to understand those components of of the of the collegiate sports industry?
1: When I was at Merrill Lefty, really personally took command and and also very strong influence over making sure Cole Fieldhouse was packed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I oftentimes see coaches not taking that responsibility. It's tougher and tougher uh, in certain schools getting the young people to come to games. And even at Maryland, uh, it's hard to fill these big arenas up now. Uh, You notice that most schools are downsizing their arenas. They're putting more luxury facilities in there because it's so hard to fill them up. If you have 16, 17, thousand, 15, thousand seats, it's really, really hard to fill that night after night. And so I think coaches need to be, need to be, need to think about, uh, their product and, and how it's being, uh, received in the marketplace. But there are other issues as well. Uh, right in the middle of obviously right now is a transfer issue. Uh, with the NCAA's rulemaking on that, um, you're going to have much more open transfers in the future, and that's going to have a lot of unintended consequences. Kids can now say, "I'm going I want to transfer." They go into a database, and you know, who knows? Obviously, everybody's going to try to recruit them. So, to be a coach today. It's like you never stop recruiting. You know, ne- you don't want your players to go into that database yeah. if they're really good. And it's, it gets so complicated. When I was in school, we had very few transfers. Uh, you might have two or three in your whole career. Now it's like 37% of kids transfer, 40% of college freshman basketball players transfer by the, the their sophomore year. So it's a, um, it's a revolving door, makes it extremely difficult for a coach. Um, but, you know, a lot of these things, unfortunately, were brought upon college college sports by sort of bad acting. We ended up uh, coaches trying to deny kids the right to transfer and so forth, mm-hmm. and and you get a lot of backlash. And then what happens is that we pass a rule which is going to really – could potentially have some unintended consequences. Again, the larger schools will be in a favored position because they can go after uh, these these smaller school players and who who aren't happy and who want to move to the to the to a bigger program. And you never know. It's very hard. Also, these underground uh, behind the scenes intermediaries pushing kids around, that's going to that's gonna continue. So it'll be interesting to see what the unintended consequences of this are. Um, I do think it will exacerbate the competitive equity issue in college sports. I think the great players will go to the great schools and because that's where they're going to be seen. That gives them a better chance to be drafted. So you're going to continue to see that kind of migration.
0: Tom, you have an event coming up in July that you just mentioned earlier, the Lead One Institute. Can you share with us the date, location, and, and who that event is for and how one can register to attend? Uh,
1: the Institute is really, it's a, we run it on a college campus every year. And this year it's at TCU in, uh, in Fort Worth. And we, uh, we run it every year in July. July 16th, 17th, and 18th. And it's a program designed for individuals who are that really close to to being ready to take a a head coach, a head AD job. And so we ask ADs, our ADs, to nominate folks. And we keep it to 50 people. And we have uh, our peer to peer faculty, we have a lot of ADs come in. And, and give uh, sessions on what it, the first 100 days, what it takes to be an AD. Uh, this year, we're adding a whole bunch of executive search firms to the mix. But it's a three-day program uh, that we train uh, young, aspiring ADs, how to become an AD. And as I said, this year, we're going to have uh, executive search firms uh, to be part of it.
0: Tom, I know there's so much more we can discuss on these topics, and I want to thank you for your time and for being on the show. Where can we go to learn more about Lead One and to connect with you?
1: If they want to email me, I'm at tom at lead1a.com.
0: And Tom, is there anything you would like to leave uh, coaches who are listening to help them uh, better understand or think about what – keeps their bosses up their ad's bosses up up at night or what they're looking for as they're running athletic departments
1: what is really interesting to me is how the the societal issues have really moved into sports at a big time You, you look at all the the political issues that have come out you know what do you do about kids that are protesting or the sexual misconduct, the, the Me Too issues, uh, all the recruiting payola and all those things. Um, it, it, it's really, if you're an AD today, you, you just hope to God you don't wake up and uh, one of these things blows up on you. And uh, the whole, obviously what we've seen at some of our schools with the sexual uh the sexual assault issues and so forth are really devastating for the AD and for the school. And and it's so difficult. What I see happening in college sports is that there are better systems being put in place. The corporate world has learned to handle this a lot better than the college sports world. Now they're putting systems in place so that when, when someone reports an incident, it really goes up the, the flagpole, everybody knows about it. Uh, these things aren't pushed under the carpet uh, like they were in the past. And so I think more transparency, more accountability is making the system better. But nevertheless, if you're an AD, you have to sit there and wonder, first of all, I'm under continued financial pressure. I've got to keep my donors happy. I've got to make sure that my I get the right group of coaches I got to watch all the litigation going on. I got new issues like transfers and sports betting to deal with. Broadcast issues are changing with cord cutting. Um, You've got the FBI in on some of this basketball. So it's a tough, tough job. Much tougher than it was 20 years ago. And so when you look at these businesses, our range of schools goes from 194 million or close to 200 million to 22 million. So, there are extreme differences in those schools, and it's a challenge to, to manage through that.
0: Well, Tom, again, thank you very much for being on Beyond the Whistle. Absolutely. Glad to, glad to do it, Odell. Thank you for listening to Beyond the Whistle. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. It's the best way to stay updated on the newest episodes. Beyond the Whistle is a production of McCant Sports, a sports executive search and talent solutions firm. To learn more about McCant Sports, visit McCantsports.com.